a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Today, this morning, I'd like to, for scripture to read as background for what we're going to be saying, the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, which is the story, as you know, of Mount Sinai. If you have your Bibles, turn, and if not, listen carefully, because it's it's an incredible chapter. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. 
Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Pray with me for a moment. Our Father, we want to thank you for the... We thank you most of all that when we come together, you come too. And you are with us because you said you would be there when two or three meet together in your name. And you've been with us. Most of all, let it be a means of letting us understand better how to walk closely and intimately with you and know what it means to have you with us. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most helpful canons for interpreting Scripture that I've ever found is, is uh, set for us. The context is set in the question, do I interpret the part by the whole or the whole by the part? And it's very easy for you and me to interpret the Bible by the part instead of by the whole. And one of the reasons is so few of us know so much about the whole. We do know the parts, and we latch on to them, and we say these, this is the eternal word of God, and so we freeze that, and then we think everything else fits with that part. But you've never heard a person speak if you only hear a sentence or two. How much better it is when you decide to let the whole be the way to interpret the individual parts, because you can take any document in the world that has any length to it whatsoever, and if you want to, you can find contradictory lines in it. That's the nature of language. We had a great preacher in Wilmore uh, when I was first came back to the, se to the seminary, then to the college, David Siemens. And I heard him preach for, I think, 22 or 23 years. I do not ever remember a bad sermon, which is unbelievable. But uh, that was the nature of it. But, you know, one of the things I noticed hearing him week by week by week if I wanted to take a number of his sermons and pit them against each other, I could make him a liar a thousand times. Because the nature of language is such that it is never absolutely exact. And so, because language is not full and it is not absolutely exact, you are never safe when you take a part if of in, 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 and interpret, assume that it tells you the whole. Now, you get this in things like the people who... who Say, if, if you're baptized, you've been saved. You can find verses that if you take them by themselves, they will support the notion that once you've been dipped, you're in. You can take, uh, you can take passages, and if you take them literally, separate them from the rest of Scripture, if you've ever let a priest give you a wafer, you've got God inside you. You can take passages that say that if you're, that if you're a member of the church, then you know the will of God because the church is God in, in our society. You can build a case for any of the excesses that we have in Christianity on the basis of parts of Scripture. You can take, a, you know, sometimes with my, with my Princeton friends, I say, the problem with you is that you interpret 
65 books and 13 chapters by three chapters instead of three chapters by 65 books and 13, and 13 chapters. Because you see, you take Romans 9, 10, and 11, and the average person reading is going to come out with a very rigid view of predestination. Now, I frankly do not think it fits with the rest of Scripture. You can take a passage like, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, and you have God liking some people and hating other people. Or you can have Jesus saying, except you hate your mother and your father, you cannot be my disciple. Now, how are you going to reconcile that with the Ten Commandments given twice and the basis of all the moral laws of Scripture, and that is honor your father and your mother? And uh, the Old Testament was very severe on the person who disobeyed his parents. Now, I simply point that out to point up the fact that you must decide whether you're going to interpret the whole by the part or interpret the part by the whole. Now, that leads me to this. Uh, yesterday, I talked about Pharaoh, and so uh, I got a question immediately afterwards about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> And Sylvia, I understand you had a question in your mind about that. Uh, you're, uh, I'm sure these two are the only two people who ever had that question in their minds. Since all the rest of you are compassionate and understanding, I'll take the time to talk to these two about one of these biblical questions. And the question is, are you going to interpret the Pharaoh story by the rest of Scripture, or are you going to interpret the rest of Scripture and er, interpret the nature of God by the language that we've got in certain spots of the uh, Pharaoh story. Now, uh, I did not intend to spend quite this much time on it, but maybe it's worth it. But let me, let me see if I can talk fast. What is the purpose of, what, what is, where do you find the Pharaoh story? You find the Pharaoh story in the story of the people of God. And what is it? It is a chapter in the story of how God wants to make himself known to a world. Now, why does he want to make himself known to a world? It's the passage where on the, on the last night before the cross, Jesus prays and he says, Father, now glorify your son as I have glorified you. He says, because we've sent me for what purpose? That they may know you. And what is it that they may have eternal life? And what is eternal life? Eternal life is that they may know that you are the, are the true God and I am your son. Now, what, it, what does it mean to know God? To know God is the way to salvation. Now, uh, if you will go through this, uh, uh, this Pharaoh story, the interesting thing is, you know how in a, in a great musical composition you'll get a theme that will recur and recur and recur and recur, and that's the key to the whole thing? Well, the key to the whole Pharaoh story is that they may know that I am Yahweh, that they may know who is God. There is no way a person can be saved if he can't know who God is. And so the purpose of that story is so. Now, let me, let me, let me just run through very quickly. Moses, you remember, meets God here at the burning bush, and God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, why should I listen to you? Who are you? And he says, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who is. And I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I'm the one who, who is, is your background nationally and so forth. So he goes to Pharaoh. When he gets to Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh say? 
Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? And what he asks is, why should I obey him? Why should I pay? He's your God. He's not mine. He doesn't have any claims on me, and I don't have any responsibilities to him. I have my own gods. In fact, I am one. <laughs> because, you see, that's the way the Pharaoh felt about himself. The milk he drank was divine milk. And uh, he had deity in him. So he said, why should I pay any attention to your uh, desert god out there, Canaanite god? I, I, we've got our gods, and our gods are certainly better than your gods. So he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Now the rest of the story is God's response to his challenge. Who is Yahweh? He says, I do not know him, and because I don't know him, I will not let you go. Now, at that point, he says to his servants, don't give them any more straw to make bricks. Let them find their own straw. And so the load is doubled up on these Hebrews to where they have quotas that they cannot fulfill, and then the leaders are beaten mercilessly because they can't fulfill an unreasonable quota. And that's Pharaoh's response. God appears in the sixth chapter to Moses again, and he says, I want to know you know who I am. I am the one who is. I am Yahweh. And I am the God of Abraham. And I am sending you to Pharaoh that the Egyptians may know that Yahweh is God. That I am Yahweh. I dare you to read the first 20 chapters of uh, Exodus and spot every time the, the line occurs, I am Yahweh. Or I am the Lord is what you'll have in your translation. I am the Lord. But that's the, that's the motif. That's the theme that keeps coming back again and again through the whole 20-chapter period. You get to the seventh chapter, and he says, I want Egypt to know that I am the Lord. So he sends the plague of the blood. And what does he say about it? By this you will know that I am the Lord. Then he sends the frogs, that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Sends gnats. And the magicians can't reproduce that. And so they say, this is the finger of God. They use that general term for God, not Yahweh. This is, the, this is the finger of God. And Moses said, this is that you may know. The flies come. That you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land and that I will make a difference between my people and you. And so that plague doesn't hit the Hebrews. Then comes the plague on the livestock but it doesn't come on, on the Hebrews. Then come the boils, and the magicians can't appear. Then comes the hail, and why the hail? That you may know that there is no one uh, beside me. I am the only God there is. Pharaoh says at that point, I've sinned. Yahweh is right, and my people are wrong. Now you're getting a break in the mental state of Pharaoh. Look at all the data he's got. Here is a God who rules the atmosphere, who rules nature, who rules everything around you. And so Pharaoh is saying, wait a minute, maybe I need to think this one through again. And so Moses says, the thunder and hail will stop so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. So that you'll know that this whole world belongs to Yahweh. He's the one who created. Then the locusts come that you may know that I am Yahweh. Then the darkness, Pharaoh says, don't come to see me anymore. 
and he's made up his mind. He's made up his mind. He is not going to pay any attention to these people. So he says, Moses, if you appear again, I'll slaughter you. Now, the interesting thing is that Exodus says that Moses had a high reputation in Egypt. And I suspect he would. <laughs> Can you imagine what CNN would do with this story? And don't tell me they didn't have their counterpart to CNN. And so the text says that God magnified Moses in the eyes of the Egyptian. This was not done in, in, in Pharaoh's court alone. Everybody in Egypt was touched by it, and Moses was the center of the whole thing. And so, uh, God says, I'll deal with the firstborn, and he does. I'll pass through and bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And you know what the concluding line is on? I will bring judgment on all the uh, gods. Notice what he says. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. It's a divine battle, you see. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh, Ani Yahweh. And it is there as that repeating theme through the whole thing. But I will pass over, pass over. I will pass over Israel. So Moses takes the bones of Joseph, packs them up, and says, time to go, boys. So they go through the sea. And when they're going through the sea, God says, I will open the sea before you, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, what is, what is God trying to do? He's trying to save the most powerful man in the world, most influential man. And he's trying to get his world to recognize who he is. I think he's still doing that. Uh, that's a nation that's plagued, isn't it? That's a nation that has been under a curse because it decided it would have nothing to do with God. And you know, as I looked at... Uh, now God says, I belong here and I'm going to lay claim because if you don't know me, you're lost. So I'd like for you to know me. It is an incredible story of the mercy and the love of God trying to reach a man. But Pharaoh, heart, is hardened, and he refuses. Now, what about the hardening of God's of Pharaoh's heart? Let me see if I can tell you what I believe. Now, I can't. This is what this is what I believe. <laughs> I doubt if you'll find this in too many of the commentaries, but I believe it, and it fits with all the rest of Scripture. Did you ever try to have to discipline a child? You ever have children? And you wanted to teach them lessons. And so kids done something clearly wrong. And so your favor shifts a bit toward him. To let him know that he's done something wrong. You may manifest that shift of favor by paddling him. Or maybe you don't do that. Maybe you do something about Set him in a corner. You do something to show that he's out of your favor. But now, you know, we had kids who were real slick. And when you started to discipline, they could outthink me. And so they knew a way to get that problem solved real quickly before they had made any repentance or learned their lesson out of the experience. 
And so I found at times I had to say, no, we're not ready to make peace yet because I don't think you've learned what you need to know. Did you ever take the car away from a kid for six weeks? Oh, wait a minute, for three weeks. And you know, after a day, he's ready to make peace to get the car back. But do you need to hold to what you did in the first place? Now, I think, you see, the only way a heart is ever softened is by the grace of God. Now, what you had in the beginning of this story is God is doing everything He can do to soften Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh won't learn. But he's ready to negotiate. <laughs> he wants the plagues to quit. So in order to get the plagues to quit, he's ready to talk a good line. So he says, sure, go on and sacrifice. Just don't leave Egypt. Or go ahead, but don't take your cattle and your sheep. Or go ahead, but don't take your children. Don't take the whole family. And so, in order to get the lesson crystal clear, God just simply keeps the Holy Spirit from softening his heart anymore. And if the Holy Spirit isn't at work on a person's heart, his heart's like stone. Have you ever been there? I have. The only thing that softens the heart is the prevenient grace of God, which is a theological term which Wesley loved for the Holy Ghost. <laughs> prevenient grace is the Holy Spirit at work in a person's life. And so God lets Pharaoh drag this thing out so the lesson gets crystal clear. Now, uh, it is not so he can be mean and destroy Pharaoh, but it is so he can save Egypt if anybody will pay any attention to it. Now, if you read carefully you'll in the, the Pentateuch, you'll find some e Egyptians believe because there were some Egyptians that went with them. Now, the Old Testament doesn't play that up dramatically, but some of them did. And uh, so there it is, you see. God wants to save everybody He can. Now, uh, uh, that's an illustration of what I mean by interpreting the part by uh, interpreting the part by the whole. Well, if I resist the spirit, that puts distance between me and the softener, <laughs> and I don't have any option. When I put when I say no to God, I am putting distance between me and the only person who can soften my heart, mellow me up and make me amenable to, to his thing. So it is Pharaoh. No man will be able to point a finger at God when he stands before him and say, if you had done differently, my situation would be different. Nobody. There'll be no one who can do that. I don't care what his background is or what his circumstance. Okay. Now, you see, the whole purpose of the incarnation was in order that we could know God. Why was Bethlehem? Why did God, the second person of the Trinity, become one of us? So we can know what He's like. So he, he came and lived among us so we could see God and see what God is like so that we can know Him. Now because of that, I don't think you interpret the incarnation by what came before. You interpret what came before by the incarnation. Do you hear me? And you don't interpret what comes after. Uh, you don't interpret the... Uh, the, the incarnation by what comes after, you interpret what comes after by the incarnation because there is the clearest window. 
there is the place to get the perspective. So it is perfectly safe to do what Paul did when he said, I take the cross as the key to everything. <laughs> and when you see the cross, you see the heart of God. And what is that heart? It is a heart that is perfectly willing to take all of your sin and all of your problems and take them on himself to where your problems become his and then he sets you free. That is, that is the kind of God you see in the cross. And the cross must be the measure of everything. And sooner or later, every verse of Scripture in the Bible has to be made consistent with the cross of Christ. And that's what gives the unity to the thing and the beauty to the thing. Okay. Now, uh, that, that throws an interesting slant on life, doesn't it? Take Pharaoh's life. Could we take it as an example for your life and mine? What is it? God is at work pulling every string He can pull so that we can know Him. That means that, uh, that frogs in your life, the gnats in your life, the flies in your life, the boils in your life, the hail in your life, the darkness in your life, the plagues in your life, why are they there? So that the godness of God can be made manifest, that He is the Lord. Let you know who He is, and when you find out who He is, He's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Jesus <laughs> and of Paul and of whoever led you to Christ. He's the God of those. And He's in your life, and there are no accidents. And you need to look at the gnats and say, wait a minute. The flies, and you say, what am I to learn here? Because he is ordering life so that all men may know who he is. Now, what does he want out of me? Why does he let life be as negative as it is? Let me say something that some of you have heard me say before, but, you know, the only thing worse than a, than a fallen world that has suffering in it would be a fallen world that didn't have anything wrong with it. If a world without God had no problems, it would be a lie. So a world without God ought to have problems. The only thing worse than a world that doesn't know God with problems would be a world that didn't know God without problems. I wish I could say that dram dramatically, but it's true. Okay. Now, what is it he wants? I love the fact he's given us two models. One of them is Caleb, and the other is Joshua. <laughs> uh, Larry Vickers said to me, he said, it's interesting that the national seal of Israel uh, has on it two men. And the two men that are on the national seal of Israel are Caleb and Joshua. <laughs> because what they're doing is they're bringing the grapes of Eshkol from Canaan. And so that's the symbol of the modern state of Israel, Caleb and Joshua. Now, uh, what fascinates me is the way the New Old, Old Testament speaks about them. Why they were... Uh, why they saw what they saw and why God was pleased with them. It says, and if you'll read your, uh, uh, your, tra your English translation, 
the most normal translation of, of the text about them is that they wholly followed the Lord. W-H-O-L-Y. They, W-H-O-L-L-Y, excuse me. They wholly followed the Lord. Now, the Hebrew, that's very interesting. It's not easy to translate. Because what it is, is a transitively, intensively transitive verb to be full. And they fulled to the fullness after the Lord. Uh, you, you just can't translate it literally. They filled. Filling they filled intensively. Very strong language. Very strong verbal expression. They filled. And so we translate, they totally followed the Lord. Now, which means God wants people who totally yield themselves to Him. Let me go back to an analogy which you've heard a number of times here. When I think about what God wants out of me, I think about the 31st of December, 1943. I was standing in front of an altar, scared out of my wits, and uh, the bridesmaids were coming down the aisle. And I looked back, and here into the doorway stepped my father-in-law, big six-foot-three rascal, and on his arm was Elsie. And when, at that point, I lost my fear, I forgot everything except her as I watched her come down that aisle. And when she came down, her father-in-law shifted her from her, from his arm to mine, and she left her family. She left her security, because I surely didn't have any. She left her security, left everything that you could count on with, you know, to stabilize life, to follow an itinerant seminary student. And you know, she's never backed up on that. I got all of her. And uh, I don't believe she's ever looked twice at another male in the way you're talk you, you understand what I'm talking about. It's possible. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean there day, haven't been days when she was unhappy. But, you know, the, 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 the wonderful thing to me was even in the depths of those miserable moments when you were out of joint with each other, there was no thought of, I'm going to go get another one. Now, that why should God want less out of me than I want out of Elsie or she wants out of me? Why should God want less than that? He's the eternal God. What we have is a symbol of that reality. And so they wholly followed the Lord. And uh, if you will look in, in uh, Numbers 13 and Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 1, Joshua 14, uh, three times in Joshua 14 in the story of when Caleb gets his section of Canaan, it is said because he wholly followed the Lord. There are not many lines in Joshua that are repeated twice. But it is repeated three times that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Now, uh, why does he want me to wholly follow him? Because he wants all of me. But uh, what is the purpose of it? That's the reason we read this chapter from Exodus uh, 19. He is after a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Now, uh, we said yesterday God wants a little real estate in his, in his own world. God wants a foothold in his own world. 
And God wants a people in His own world. Because the place is of no use if there isn't somebody there to speak it, to illustrate it, to witness it. So He wants a people in the midst of this. Now why does He want them? There to be a kingdom of priests. Now let me remind you what a priest is. A priest is a person who doesn't live for himself. A priest lives to serve other people. Now you know, there are a lot of Hebrews, Jews, through human history have felt God liked us and chose us. We're the chosen people. So, but you know why they were chosen? Not so they could look down at anybody, but so they could serve all the rest. And the Pentateuch is loaded with either explicit words to that effect or implications that are there. I missed them for years. You don't have to go to the New Testament to get the missions message. It, the Pentateuch reeks with it. Now, they don't live for themselves. You remember that passage, For the love of Christ constrains us? For we thus judge that one died for all, and if all died, then all are dead, that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. We're to be a kingdom of priests who live for others. That means that we're mediators. We stand between. We stand between the God the world needs to know and a world that needs to know God. Have you got some neighbors you don't like? Then your role is to stand between them and the God that they need that will make them likable, you see. So we're, we're, we play a mediatorial role. That's why Israel is called the firstborn. They're the first to reach out to the, to the rest. And they're to be holy, which means the signature of God is to be on them. His name is on them as holy. Now, what, ha what, do, what does a person have to do to be a priest? Let me uh, remind you what the Old Testament says about a priest. If you look at Exodus 29, it's a fascinating story. For the average American Christian, it's totally boring <laughs> and uninteresting, and we jump to get over it to get on to something more interesting. But uh, if you'll stop and look at it, it's very impressive. Priest has to have special garments, special robe, a special hat, and a crown on his hat. I love the way the poets have picked up that. Have you ever heard this line? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. <laughs> We're not fit to stand before him as the priest. So what does he do? He clothes us in the righteousness of his own son. Okay, the priest has to have new garments. <laughs> you... <laughs> There's a passage in Zechariah about where uh, the prophet says, take those filthy garments off the priest because the priest is supposed to be clean. And so he has different clothing and he has an anointing. There is oil poured on him and that oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That he cannot do his work by himself. As Zechariah tells us, not by might nor by power, and in those two words, mind and power, koach and chayil, you get all of human resources. Anything that DNA can give you, anything that you've got that comes naturally, it isn't enough. You've got to have something from beyond you. You've got to have God. And so the Holy Spirit comes. Only the person who is anointed with the Spirit can be a priest. 
And then you got a bull that has to be sacrificed. His blood has to be shed because the priest's sins have to be forgiven before he can help any sinner. And then a burnt offering has to be made, a ram, a whole burnt offering. And the interesting thing is, it does not say this about the sin offering, but it says it about the whole burnt offering. It is a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. And what is a whole burnt offering? It is a whole life that is offered up in gratitude and in praise and in service to God. Where everything about you is to the praise and the glory of God. Now that's a priest. So that when people look at you, they don't see a mixed signal. They see a single signal, and that's one that points to the God from whom we came. Now, there is a, a sacrifice has to be made uh, there. And there is another ram that is slain. And when he's slain, the blood of that lamb is taken, and some of it is put on the right ear of the priest. Now, uh, I love the way the Old Testament does symbolism, uh, because the ear is very important. That's the way you, uh, God communicates with you. And so you need the blood on the ear so you can hear him. That still small voice. Because the world around you is going to throw so much noise into your ear. If you don't have a sanctified ear, you're not going to hear his voice. You'll hear all sorts of other voices. So the priest is a person who can hear the voice of God. The interesting thing is, then the blood is put on the right thumb. <laughs> I remember when I first read the Pentateuch, I thought, what under the sun? But do you know how important the thumb is? How important is the thumb, John? <laughs> Have you ever tried to hold anything without your thumb? Anytime you want to hold anything, your thumb is the key figure in the holding anything. Do you know what that saying is? I want to control what you hold. <laughs> Isn't that a dramatic way of saying it? There is, you cannot hold anything except in terms of your priesthood. That, that's incredibly comprehensive in its impact. If you're going to be a priest, you cannot hold anything. Now, it's interesting in the Old Testament to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. And did you know that the Levites had no possession in Israel? When they divided up Canaan, the Levites didn't get any real estate. They got cities. And you know who took care of them? The rest of Israel took care of the Levites because you know what the Levites' portion was? It was Yahweh himself. Not a piece of real estate. The portion of the Levite was God himself, not one of his gifts. And so God wants me to come to the place where I have him. And did you know if you've got him, that's all you need? Let me use my line. Do you think the person who only has God is a whit poorer than the guy who's got everything plus God? Or do you think the guy is a whit richer who's got everything plus God than the guy who has nothing but God? When you get God, <laughs> you've got the source of it all. <laughs> and so he says, I, let me control your thumb. <laughs> 
then there won't be anything in your life to conflict, and everything in your life will be a witness to your mediatorial priestly role. Then the third thing is the big toe. That has to do with where you walk and where you go. Uh, then he is sprinkled, his garments are sprinkled with the blood, of, with the blood and we are to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what is God after? Every person to be a part of that kingdom of priests. The highest level of grace in the New Testament is implicit within this Old Testament story. And you need the letters of Paul to get it spelled out in the fullness, but it's there. Now, uh, you read the 52nd chapter of, of Isaiah and you'll find that it concludes, they that bear the vessels of the Lord must be clean. Now, why aren't we? Why don't we please him? You know, the unregenerate man has one problem. The regenerate man has a distinctly different problem. The unregenerate man is blind, so he can't see. Thinks he's accepting God and he's accepting a false God. That's Pharaoh. He's deaf. When God speaks, he can't hear. And he hears other voices instead. And he's in bondage. He's enslaved. He's enslaved to his own appetites. You know, uh, I wish I knew enough about gravity to illustrate this. But when Adam and Eve turned their attention to themselves instead of to God, they moved into another gravitational field. And you know, one of the problems with shooting a rocket up is if you don't get it out of the gravitational pull of the earth, she's coming back. The only way it can go beyond is get it beyond the gravitational pull of the world, the earth, it'll pull it right back. Now you see, the ego, the self, has such gravitational pull that apart from grace, everything is going to be pulled to me. I had somebody tell me the other day about uh, a, friend, a fellow he was talking with on the plane who was in science, University of North Carolina, highly educated. No, he said, I don't want to go into research science. Because he said, you know what corrupts research science? Now you have to get grants. And if you're going to get a grant, there's always the implication that we want you to prove something when we give you this money. And he said, I've watched too many of my superiors doctor the evidence to protect the grant. Those are Ph.D. university scientists. Don't kick them. You get God out of the system and a man has no option. So the person who's unregenerate has one problem. But the person who's regenerate has had put in him a power that if you listen to it can set him free from that gravitational pull but there's still a gravitational pull toward the world. That's what Paul was talking about when he said getting Egypt out. It's one thing to get out of Egypt, it's another thing to get Egypt out of us. So that when they got to the Red Sea and the Hebrews, after seeing all these plagues and seeing the, the, the Passover and the death of all the Egyptian firstborn, when they looked at the sea, they said, let's go back. And they never got into the promised land because there was a, they wanted, they, 
they still controlled themselves. They hadn't turned their lives totally loose. It was a corner. F.B. Meyer told about how after he'd been in the ministry a number of years, under the influence of Keswick teaching, in a Keswick conference, God began to deal with him. And he said, Lord, I want to be wholly yours. And the Lord said, give me the keys to your heart. And so he said, I took the key ring out and slipped one small one off and handed him the key ring. And the Lord said, what's that in your hand? Well, he said, that's a very insignificant little key. It's to a little closet. There's nothing in there of any significance. You don't need that. And God said, how can you say you've given me everything if you're keeping one for yourself? And he said, then to my horror, I found I couldn't turn it loose. <laughs> and so he said, I can't. And God said, no, you can't turn it loose. That's what you need to know. You couldn't forgive your sins and you can't turn loose your ego. It'll take as much grace to get you free from your ego as it did to forgive you your sins. And he said, you mean you can set me free? He said, yeah, if you'll let me, I'll take it. And so he said, that broke me in terror. I said, okay. And he took it. He said, then he opened the door to that little closet that was so insignificant. And he said, you can't imagine the foulness of the stuff that he brought out of that little secret hidden compartment that I had there. But when he got through, F.B. Meyer said, I felt clean. Now, that's the Christian's problem. That's not the unregenerate man's problem. God has no corner in the unregenerate person's life. He's got his conscience, but that's not a corner. That's not God. That's the human. But in a Christian, he's got a corner. And so the conflict comes. Now, let me give you, and uh, I think I've got three minutes. I wish we had ten on this, but hold on. How can that be taken place? How does the Bible understand it? I want you to look with me at Deuteronomy for a minute. And I love the fact that this word is clear. <laughs> now, you've got to dig to find it. And if you read superficially, you'll miss it. But if you will look at the 10th chapter of the... Uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. You will remember that yesterday we said that God said uh, to Israel, you're stiff-necked. Your neck's turned the wrong way and you don't, you can't get it turned right. You can't get it turned toward me. In the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy, you get this passage. In verse 16. Uh, well, read verse 15. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. He chose you and their descendants above all the nations, that is, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the alien, gives him food and clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast Him, cleave to Him, like a wife cleaves to her husband or a husband to his wife, and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70, and now the Lord your God has made them as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's an incredible passage, but the key is, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked. So apparently, 
God felt that circumcision could do something about your stiff, stiff neck. Now, turn with me to the uh, 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. Look at verse 5 of the 30th chapter. God will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Yahweh your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. To what end? So that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Now what's the purpose? What is the meaning of circumcision? The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him how much? with all your heart, with all your soul, and with live. Notice the totality. Notice the exclusiveness. Notice the unconditional character of it. Now, symbols are, are important biblically. In the New Testament, it's baptism. You die. You're buried with Him. And you come up to live a new life. And a life that's supposed to be wholly His. But you know, you can be buried and come up and still have resistance in your heart where you want to keep a corner on your life. Now, they knew this in the Old Testament, so he says, what I want you to do, you've been circumcised. Now I want you to let God circumcise you. <laughs> what I love is that there is nothing anywhere that's ever accomplished significantly apart from grace. It is God all the way. And if I've got a divided heart, you know my only help, hope. Don't try to whip me into making the, you know, me uniting it is impossible. If I've got a dissent within me and I don't want to do God's will, if I've got a fear within me of, uh, of surrendering fully to Him, if I've got my own ideas and they're in conflict with His, if I'm ever to be set free, He's got to do it. And that has become to me the, the, the best of all good news. That when you've got a divided heart, you can come to him and say, Lord, can you, as the psalmist prayed, unify my heart to do your will? And he said, yeah, I can circumcise your heart so you'll love me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the Old Testament standard. That's not American evangelicalism standard. But the one we're going to be judged by is the biblical standard, not the American standard. This is it. And the beautiful thing is nothing is demanded that grace can't perform. You say, well, there were only two who made it. <laughs> now that bothered me a long time. But now you know how the two make it. I thought at first they were exceptional people. No? Do you know if anybody ever makes it, you know how he gets there? By the grace of God. And did you know if there's a single person in the world who's got a clean heart, nobody's got an excuse for not having one. If there's a single person in the world who's got a heart that isn't divided, then there's nobody in the world that hasn't experienced. 
excuse for a divided heart because the only way a heart can be undivided where we love him with all of our being is for him to do the work within us and he plays no favors. Did you notice that passage? That passage in Deuteronomy 30? He says he has no favors. So what he did for Caleb and Joshua, he's willing to do for me. And if I'm not there, it's my fault. So I can look up and say, scares the willies out of me, Lord. <laughs> Only thing that scares me worse is not to let you do it. And it will begin. Shall we pray together? Father, we want to thank you for your word. Forgive us that we know so little about it, but give us an openness to where we're willing to listen, but more than that, we're willing to seek. And we seek not just a knowledge of your word, we want a knowledge of your word so we can know you. It's you that we need. It's you. It's not information. It's not doctrine we need. It's you. But we need to know more so that we can know you better. In a few minutes, Lord, we're going to be taking the bread and the wine. They're the symbols that you didn't hold anything back. You gave yourself totally for us. And what a stream of blessing has come to the world. What a benighted place this would be if you hadn't done it. We wouldn't have to go to hell. It'd be hell already. Now you look at us and say, will you give, will you give your hearts to me? Whole heart? Will you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? As we take the bread and as we take the cup, let us know that the power that is in the body and blood of Jesus is the power that can circumcise our hearts and unite them to fear your name and to follow in your ways, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thank you, Lord, for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.